You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Well, Julie did a nice job last week of giving us the story, the first part of the story of Noah. She covered the corruption and the violence of Noah's day. She talked about the fact that Noah was the only one found righteous uh, in a corrupt world, and that uh, though God was going to destroy uh, the world, he provided Noah with the uh, plan to build an ark, and because of that ark, through that ark, because Noah's family was in that ark, uh, they were saved to start uh, life in a new world. Well, today we're going to talk about the flood and the events after, and I really hope you appreciated the storm I specially ordered last night. Helped us all get in the mood. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 9. Well, how do you cover one of the most famous Bible stories from the Old Testament? We've all heard it. There have been hundreds of depictions of it in various forms of media. Well, I'm not going to go through the story line by line. Uh, So what we're going to do is stretch our minds with some questions that hit some significant points. So if you'll pass out those papers. Everybody have a paper? Anybody missing a paper? Because it's got important information for you. All right, so let's go through these questions. Who's seen the movie Noah? I have. Okay, good. Your mind is unsullied. Uh, there's a lot, of it, a lot of inaccuracies in there when you compare it to the Bible account. Uh, it's a well-made movie, spectacular in its scope, uh, but we're going to follow kind of the Bible story here and ferret out some of the facts and details. All right, question one, how many people entered the ark? Now, I'm going to throw this open, but, you know, it's always a tough thing to decide to answer in a big group like this. Uh, I promise I won't make fun of anybody, and you don't need to answer if nobody wants to. I'm happy to give you the the answer. Eight is right. Eight people in the ark, and you have the reference there on your sheet, Genesis 16, 8. Noah, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives. It's it's, uh, not recorded that they did. And and for the last last time, I'll mention the movie Noah. Uh, Who went on the ark there were... Two, four, five, six people, because two of the sons did not have any wives. Pardon me? Yeah. And we were in the stowaway. <laughs> okay. So again, last, last reference to the movie. Good. Uh, question two. Noah was told to take animals in the ark two by twos, one male, one female, but there were two kinds of animals he was told to bring in by sevens. What were those two kinds? You'll find the answer in Genesis 7, verses 2 to 3. Anybody hazard a guess? Happy to tell you. Clean animals and birds. Somebody's a genius. That's good. No, no. Okay, who, who, oh, there's, there's Noah trying to figure out which are the clean animals and which are the birds. Who shut the door of the ark? God. Excellent. Genesis 17, 16 tells us that. Where did the floodwaters come from? Sky? 
Good. And below, up and down. Good. Genesis 17, 11. The fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky. Uh, question five. The Bible says that floodwaters cover the mountaintops by more than 15 cubits. How do we know? How is it that we know it was at least 15 cubits, but we don't know the exact number? You might find the answer in Genesis 7.20 and 6.15. You're, you're on the right track. Let's, let's talk about the ark. The ark was, as Julie mentioned, really long, longer than it is wide. This is not written in cubits. It's written in estimated feet. But uh, I have a better drawing coming up. Uh, but, but so it was, it, was wide, it was longer than it was wide, and it was wider than it was tall. Um, I, I don't like these as much because they, they do a fancy sort of make it look like a ship. And uh, it, it takes my attention off of the measurements and so on. So um, I, I brought one of my favorite show and tells when it comes to an ark. I, I like shoe boxes because they work. They're longer than they are wide, and they're often shorter than they are wide. So uh, the measure that we have on this clever drawing of an arc cross-section <laughs> is that it's 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. So as you think about an arc made out of lumber, logs, filled with Lots and lots of animals, a lot of weight to this thing. I think the earlier slide had some uh, thousand tons or something. But so you plop that in the water, and you know it's going to part of it's going to sink, part of it's going to be above the water. Shouldn't have to go over this lesson in the Annapolis area. Happens with every boat and every ship. Well, if it's thirty cubits high and it's in the water about halfway, it has a draft of. 15 cubits. So how did they know? It was more than 15, but they didn't know the exact number. They stopped scraping land as they floated around. That's my thought. The Bible doesn't say that. But it lets us know something. As you see that, and then as you read the rest of the account, go back and read the rest of the account, it really reads like a diary. You know? It's got facts and figures. It's got short, terse but descriptive language about things. And this is a good, good example here. Yeah, the water was more than 15 cubits above the mountaintops because we didn't scrape anything anymore. Uh, okay, the next question. What two kinds of birds did Noah send out to determine if the land was dry and habitable? Good, excellent. Raven and dove. Uh, After the ark rested on Mount Ararat, 40 days later, Moses released a raven. Apparently sometime after that, he released a dove, which came back. Uh, He waited seven days. He sent the dove out again. It came back with an olive leaf. He waited seven more days, sent the dove out, and it didn't come back. The best that folks can figure, there's no definitive explanation for why he used two birds initially. 
but they're two very different kinds of birds. Uh, and so the thought is that the raven, being a stronger and a kind of the hyena of the bird family, uh, would have eaten on, does eat on carrion and such. And the dove is a nesting type of bird, sort of works a little bit more off of seeds and things like that. So uh, the thinking is that he might have been shooting for two different things, you know, uh, two different experiences with it. The Bible does say the raven flew back and forth, and then he released a dove. So maybe the raven didn't do what Noah wanted it to, which is come back and give him some feedback. He just saw it and kept flying in and back. So let's work with a dove. I don't know. Uh, the Bible isn't crystal clear. All right, question seven. How long were Noah and, fam- and his family in the ark? Genesis 7, 11 to 13, and Genesis 8, 14, and 15, about two months. Did I not put the... I did not. I apologize. It's on your sheet, though. I put a multiple choice here. A, about two months. B, about five months. C, about a year. D, about one and a half years. Anybody? A year? Excellent. A year. The whole time. (laughs) Good. The whole time, yes. It was. It's about a year. It was either about 10 or 20 days short of a year or over a year, and I don't remember which way it went, but under a year. Just under a year, right. Okay, what's the first thing Noah did once the people and the animals were off the ark? Genesis 18, 8. Genesis 8, verses 18 to 20 has the answer for us. Built an altar and offered a burnt offering on it. Yes, to the Lord. All right, excellent. So now I wanted to cover three issues worth mentioning. As you can tell, it's sort of scrambling to cover these three chapters. They're full of information, three-plus chapters. And uh, one issue which uh, sometimes people think about, or it's like, how did that work? Uh, It really dips back a little bit. How many people were on the earth at the time of the flood? They're not sure, and so they wonder. Well, in Genesis 5, if you remember, we have the genealogy of Seth, which is the genealogy of the seed, the one, the line through which that one was to be born who was going to crush the serpent's head, even though the serpent crushed his heel. Uh, And so we have that genealogy. And you have ten generations, starting with Adam, down through Seth, and so on and so on, and Enoch, and Methuselah, and so on and so on, and Noah. Ten generations. So if you are a little nerdish and sit down with uh, Excel and start plugging in variables... And, and sort of figure out what, over that 1,635 years that that all took place, like, you know, what was the, what was the average age they started having children, and, uh, you know, those sorts of questions, um, you can come up with different answers. Now, I took a real conservative approach, and I said, well, you know, we know Adam and Eve had six children that lived, that survived at least longer than Abel did. 
and that is Cain and Seth, that's two. And then it says Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. So if they had two more sons and two more daughters, they had six. So let's work with that. Six children, Adam and Eve. So then those six grew up, married, and then they all had six. And we'll just work through that. If you go through ten generations that way, and as people died off, you subtract them out of the the little database you're building here, and you end up with 1.6 million people. That's the way geometric progressions work. So you should put money in your TSP as early as possible, your 401k plan, because that's how it works. So if you say, well, eight children a year, because these people live 900-some years, and the, if you look at the range of ages they were when they had the next person in line for the seed, you find out of those 10, the low is 65, is when a person who was the next line in the seed was born. And the maximum, I'm going to discount Noah, he had Shem around somewhere near when he was 500 or within 100 years or so of that. Um, But not counting Noah, the longest one is 187 when he had that next child. So when were they too old to stop having children? Well, 500 wasn't too old. So if you think about just having six children or just having eight children, which is the next number I took a look at, um, I think they had more than that on average. But let's look at eight. Eight children, 15.6 million. If you go to 10 children, 100 million people were on the earth. Geometric progression, again, like I said, 12 children per. Now, we've had families in America in the last 200 years that had 12 children and more in a family. So this is not an unreasonable number. But 12 children give you 480 million. Don't forget, the command was, be fruitful and multiply. And after I did the multiplication, you get a lot of people. Why is that important? I don't know that it really is. It's a nice trivia thing. But you know what? It, it, where I see some importance is it really underscores and puts the emphasis on the fact that the whole world was full of violence and corrupt, and there was one righteous man. Isn't that amazing? You know, Elijah was concerned that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the only one, Lord. And the Lord said, look, I've got thousands of people over here that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You know, uh, Noah preached to this world, and he had no converts, but he did have his whole family. Uh, but yet, he was, he was about as alone as one has been in the history of humankind. Okay, was the, world, was the flood worldwide or just a local event that is restricted to kind of a region? Christians differ on this, and there's evidence on both sides. I've listed some of the reasons people give on your sheet for why they believe it needed to have been a global flood, that it really was a global flood. And I have some reasons people give for why their, con- their conviction is it was uh, a local flood. You can have your conviction on that. Uh, I lean toward a global flood. Um, and I, uh, um, I also included there uh, right after those reasons, 
the very end of the, the second page, a chart that I found that, that uh, displays sort of the different flood traditions in various cultures that, that they found. And in their tradition, what parts of it connect, uh, are the same as the Bible story, connect up with in terms of there was an ark, people got saved through it. You know, there, uh, I don't even remember what the other things are that are on there, but you have that chart. Uh, I just think that's kind of interesting. Okay, so, next question is, what were the provisions of the new covenant with Noah? Well, reiterated was, be fruitful and multiply. But the relationship with animals changes. God says... From now on, animals are going to fear man. It may have something to do with the fact that God gave man permission to eat of all the animals. But whatever caused the change, now there, is, um, there isn't any sense of cooperation with a few small examples, cats and dogs, uh, where animals cooperate with humans. They, there's a... There's a relationship of fear. A third thing is, uh, God makes this interesting statement. I had you turn to Genesis 9 because I forgot to put this verse on a slide. But Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, if you opened your Bibles there, uh, God talks about, for the first time in Scripture, uh, the concept of the image of God and how that relates to murder and capital punishment. He says, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. So God's saying he's going to hold every animal to account that takes a human life. And from each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Now, you have to remember, when Noah came off of the ark, all of the past society and government is gone with the flood. So this is one of the first sort of governmental laws. Title I, Section 1, here's something that needs to be there. Um, The line God's drawn for Noah is that man is created in God's image. Man is set apart from the other animals. He's, he's of a different sort. He is set apart. Another one of our themes in Genesis. He carries the image of God. And God's emphasizing the fact that murder is not simply an offense against the victim, the family, or against society at large, but it's against God. So valuable is human life as as being the bearers of God's image, that God talks in terms of capital punishment. So you might say, or you may have heard, if you cared about God's image, wouldn't that make you against capital punishment? And I'm just saying, as we sort of look at the Bible here, God is suggesting that capital punishment's the just outcome for an individual who has taken someone else's life, someone else who's in the image of God and further indicates that society or government is accountable to God for following through. Now, I'm not telling you what to think, and our church doesn't take a position 
uh, uh, precisely on things like this. Uh, But I just wanted to point out what Genesis 9 says about it. And the fourth thing is that the earth will not be destroyed by water again. Though these are all parts of what people call the covenant God made with Noah, uh, this new era in human history between humans and God. Okay, well, the, the final issue that uh, I wanted to talk about uh, is, has to do with sort of what Julie calls the so what. How is the flood significant to us? Why, what should we get out of the flood? And uh, uh, rather than squeeze something out of Genesis, I took a look at the New Testament to see how it was referenced and used there because it's referenced several times. And the flood foreshadows the day of the Lord. It is used as the example, some features of it, of, you know, there's a judgment coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Uh, It's used by Jesus, both Jesus and Peter, to talk that way. We know Noah preached, and ever since the first century, with the completion of the books of the Bible, God's word has been preached. Uh, all the way to this day, the judgment for the world is coming. God said in Genesis 6, if you remember, when he's talking about the evil, uh, the violence, the wickedness in the world, he said, my spirit will not always strive with man. We get the same message, uh, not with the same emphasis, but the same message in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit's hard at work convicting the world of sin of righteousness, and of judgment. Of its sin because it's separated from God. Uh, we, we aren't pursuing God. We've, we've pushed Him out of the way. We've gone our own way. Of righteousness because that's the only righteousness that can be had is God's righteousness. We all fail that test. And of judgment because the day of the Lord's coming. It is coming as it was spoken about by the prophets. You know, the, the, uh, the wicked were destroyed and they will be destroyed and a remnant saved out of the day of the Lord. A parallel there. The Bible indicates that just like Noah's family was saved in the ark, that we are saved when we're in Christ. That's the refuge. That's the safety. The flood's mentioned in the same context as the day of the Lord. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows. He's talking about the day of the Lord. But the Father. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Judgment's coming, and the talk about um, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, some people have interpreted and said, well, they were just partying and everything instead of being serious about things. I, I think he's trying to get at the fact that normal life went on. There was no um, 
there was no warning like, yeah, we had a real big rain last night and it partially flooded everything. Oh, another big rain and it flooded more. You know, maybe a big one's coming. It just came suddenly. There was no warning and they did not understand until it came. You know, skeptics note that this thing hasn't happened for 2,000 years and that everything stays the same. You know, Peter answers that question in his book. In 2 Peter 2, uh, 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7. Okay, I didn't get this verse on there too. I apologize. But let me read it to you. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command and brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. He's talking about the first two or three days of creation. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when uh, the ungodly people will be destroyed. You know, the Lord isn't really slow at keeping this promise, even though we've been, we, humankind, has been sitting around for 2,000 years. Peter tells us God doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to come back to him. It's patience, it's mercy that that has kept the Lord from executing that. He's waiting. But when the day of the Lord comes, it will come unexpectedly. The heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the elements will melt with intense heat, not suggesting it's going to be by atomic bomb, but that's just symbolizing the fact that this one's a fire. So the question for us this morning from Second Peter really is, as we think about the flood, as we think about judgment, as we think about God's promised judgment, what kind of holy and godly lives should we live looking forward to the new heavens and new earth, a world that's full of God's righteousness? You know, Peter gives us three answers to this. One is, he says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. Well, that word alert is an interesting word, so is sober-minded. Alert means be sober. And it means literally sober, not drunk. But it's also used figuratively, like many of our words are. So be sober in, in that you're not oblivious, you're not, you know, drifting off. You, you are alert, awake, aware. Nothing get, gets by you. It's the opposite of oblivious. Then the word sober mind, be of sober mind, it's, it's really be of sane mind. Don't be insane in your thinking. Make sure your actions line up with reality. You know, Bill told us that, uh, gave us that uh, sort of humorous definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again but expecting different results. I don't know how effective or how precise a definition it is, but it's very descriptive of not acting as if reality exists. You're doing the same thing over and over again and saying, hey, we, I didn't get the right result. Hey, it's still the same bad result. What's going on? Let me try it again. 
And uh, Peter is saying, have your actions line up with reality. The reality is that doesn't work. So sanity says you move on and do something different. But what actions does Peter have in mind? And he tells us, make every effort to live lives that are peace-filled, lives lives of peace, purity, and blamelessness. Peace-filled lives. You know, I... uh, long time ago, uh, I was doing a Bible study, and, and there was somebody in that group that, that really um, liked to follow all those YouTube and internet and television sort of preachers that were focusing on, hey, what's, what's the news headlines? How does that affect the end of time? And, oh, man, this world is really getting bad. And, uh, and he used to come in and uh, you know, it, it sort of bubble up as we were in the Bible study. Always seemed concerned and even fearful about how bad the world was getting. It's like everything's falling apart. This is terrible. Um, but Paul writes in Romans 3, and he's writing about the people that have rejected God and are just heading their own way completely. And he says, The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, fear is the key to a peaceful life. Fear of God. Because if you fear God, then nothing out here is going to make you afraid. Because, because you're fearing the one that control, owns it. The God of the universe. God's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. Back to that sober-minded thinking. If we fear God... We have that spirit in us. Pure means spotless, without blemish. It sort of hints at that sacrifice, that lamb that was set aside that had to be pure and no blemishes to be able to be sacrificed to God. We're supposed to be pure without blemish. Blameless. Blameless means nobody can level an accusation against you. So that's living a life out front that matches your inner life, and it's all aimed at godliness. All right, and the final thing Peter says, final imperative, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace means our actions, what we do, are the same actions of God, loving, forgiving, encouraging, Knowledge means being focused on our relationship with God, renewing our mind, as it says in Romans 12, be part of a transformation of character in the process. You know, the common denominator with all these things is, in light of the day of the Lord, what kind of um, holy and godly lives should we live? Lives that are changed from the way we would naturally live. You know, back, uh, way back, beginning of the year, near the beginning of the year, uh, Melanie mentioned, you know, this dating relationship I have, it's headed for more. And, you know, we're probably going to make all this thing work and have a wedding later this fall. Well, it jolted my world. Um, because 
For the 18 months before that, I had targeted this summer, summer of 2015, and said, you know, we need to just go, Julie, we need to go somewhere around a big house and have all the kids, all their families, just spend a week together out in the mountains or somewhere else. Uh, But, you know, that kind of thing you have to save up for, which I was really saving up for and working on. But understanding reality, I had to change. I was forced to change. Uh, So I canceled. That's one of the first things I did was canceled. But I had to cancel it very carefully because I talked it up to all the kids. But I, I couldn't let the cat out of the bag because it wasn't news to everybody. So I'd say, well, plans change. We're not doing it now uh, to all the children, but uh, things have to change. God's asking us to be alert, to be expectant, to live in the light of the reality of the future judgment. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God to be feared, that, but you're also a God of love, a God that's so patient and willing to wait. He doesn't want anyone to perish. We pray that we might live lives that exemplify that, that we might be the kind of uh, preacher with our lives that, that Noah was to his generation. We thank you so much. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.